The Bob Murphy Show, episode 104. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this installment, I'm going to do what the people wanted. Uh, You may remember, longtime listeners, that back on episode 62... I had a list of what I call tough questions for progressives. And then on episode 66, I followed up with tough questions for conservatives. And remember, folks, to go to those, you go bobmurphyshow.com slash 62 or slash 66 and so on. I'm sure you see the pattern. Uh, So in this one, I'm going to do tough questions for libertarians. Now, let me also mention that included in libertarianism per se, I'm also going to be rolling in typical free market arguments that libertarians often embrace, right? So I'm not conflating the two. Strictly speaking, economic analysis that tends to favor free market outcomes is not the same thing as the political philosophy of libertarianism, right? And so in this particular episode, I'm not going to get real highbrow and abstract about all those relationships, but you guys get what I'm saying, all right? The kind of person who's a libertarian out in the battles facing us today in terms of government policies and social issues that we talk about on social media, I think any fair listener will realize that my questions are going to be pointed at a certain person who fits that description. Also, I should mention, just to clarify, different types of libertarians will be susceptible to or the relevant targets of some of these questions, but not others, right? So I'm trying to be broad-based here, and I'm not merely, as one might suspect, picking on or singling out what I think are problems with the kind of libertarian that disagrees with me and my buddies. That's not what I'm doing here. So some of these issues that I'm going to raise with these questions are ones that I've grappled with myself. And then, you know, once it occurred to me, the, the cognitive dissonance or even outright contradiction, if in some cases some might believe, have made me say, huh, gee, I never realized I had those two competing arrows in my quiver, so I got to resolve this somehow, all right? So again, the point of me going through this is not to be like, ha ha, anybody who's a libertarian's an idiot, I still call myself a libertarian, and yet I'm trying to be thoughtful and just clear up any internal confusions we might have or blind spots that we might have. Let me also just mention as way of disclaimer In the previous episodes of this genre, where I had tough questions, first for progressives, then conservatives, they were pretty baseline stuff, right? Like, so with the progressives, it was along the lines of, okay, the arguments you use to say why raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour is a good idea, why wouldn't they also explain raising it to 30 or 50 or 60? And I clarified, folks, you may recall, I wasn't saying that was the definitive tour de force end of story. Therefore, the minimum wage raised to 15 doesn't make sense because everybody can agree raising it to $300 an hour would be wrong. That's not what my point was. My point was, though, the arguments I had seen advanced by many people in favor of 
a $15 an hour minimum wage, for example, saying, oh, well, people can't live on less than that, you know, that kind of stuff. I was like, all right, well, or if, if they raise it, it'll help the economy because now workers will have more to spend. I was like, okay, well then, if those are the only things to consider, and if that means raising it from the current level to 15 an hour is a good idea, well, then why not to 30? So that was my point. I wasn't saying you can't justify the policy. I'm saying the way you've been justifying it clearly can't be the full story because otherwise this more aggressive thing would make sense too. And even you are agreeing that would be going too far. So that was the idea. So since I'm a, not a progressive and I'm not in favor of raising the minimum wage $15 an hour, it was easy for me to say that. Whereas I am a libertarian and I do embrace free market arguments in most cases. And so that's why the stuff I'm going to raise in this episode is going to be a lot deeper because for me to get to the point at which I think, all right, this group of people has not thought this stuff through, obviously I'm going to get much deeper into the analysis before I hit that wall if I'm hanging out with people that I agree with typically. All right, so that's why in case it comes off like, oh, Bob had really baseline dumb man on the street objections to progressivism and conservatism, but with the libertarians, he had kid gloves and was asking real esoteric, well, no, it's because... I don't think there's just a step one, boom, you know, literature destroyer argument with libertarianism, because if it were, I wouldn't still be a libertarian. But nonetheless, I also don't want to come off as if I'm saying I haven't seen any problems in my own camp. Okay, so with all those caveats and whatnot, let's jump right into the tough questions for libertarians. If you've been following the climate change debate, I think you might be sympathetic to the following description that the so-called alarmists were using their computer models and they were making forecasts about how rapidly temperatures would rise. And then when there was the so-called pause, several years went by where average global temperatures didn't respond very significantly, certainly did not rise to the level that would have been predicted by the leading models, that many libertarian types thought, okay, that's embarrassing for the alarmists. Doesn't mean the whole thing's a hoax, of course, but certainly it means that maybe you shouldn't have uh, used such aggressive rhetoric. And at the very least, now that your predictions have blown up in your face, you should be somewhat contrite and not just double down and say anyone who still disagrees with you is evil. Okay, completely unrelated topic. When it comes to people who were concerned about price inflation following the Fed's interventions, uh, did you notice a lot of them, and by the way, I'm one such person, so <laughs> I don't want any uh, innocent listener to not realize that and then have one of my critics pointed out. Um, did you notice in the wake of that, a lot of the people who had been saying there's going to be aggressive price inflation, like rises in the official CPI and so on, and then when that didn't happen, in 2010, 2011, they just sort of changed what the argument was and said, okay, well, you know, it, it went somewhere else. The, you know, the price increase was in asset markets. And anyway, this kind of unnatural dabbling with the financial environment, you know, with this outside intervention, that's going to cause consequences. Yeah, we can't predict exactly what the bad thing's going to be. This is a very complex system, but come on, we're playing with fire here. Look at this. This is unprecedented interventions. Look at how much base money the Fed injected. And I'm sorry if I didn't exactly say what quarter was going to happen where you'd see the spike in gasoline prices, but give me a break. We're 
we're setting ourselves up for a disaster that's going to unfold. Just trust me. I can't believe we're having this discussion. Doesn't that sound kind of like the climate alarmists who are saying, okay, yeah, sure, it didn't show up in the troposphere temperatures, but it, the heat's, it went into the ocean or something. Okay, so we're off on the timing. There's more of a lag than we really, but look, you're, look at this. Look at how much CO2 and methane, so on human activities are pumping into this complex system. I'm sorry if I didn't. So my question is, do you see a little bit of a similarity there? If you're a fan of Hans Hoppe's argumentation ethics, I'm not saying you're right or wrong. All I'm saying, though, is review to yourself if you had to boil down what you take the argument to be. All right, I'm not saying give someone a link to Hoppe's talk or his work or to something Stefan can sell it. I'm saying if you yourself had to boil down the essence of what the argument is as to how the nature of argumentation itself implies self-ownership, for example, like with the arguments you, and then by extension, everything else in the standard libertarian approach to property rights. If you had to yourself explain what that connection is, go ahead, you know, do that first. Pause this if you want, if you really want to take this exercise seriously. Okay, now, now that we're back, could I, with fairly minor and seemingly inconsequential tweaks to what you just said the argument was, could I also make a plausible argument for why animals own themselves? And it would be immoral for us to initiate aggression against a horse, for example. Certainly we couldn't just grab a horse and keep it inside of a cage or a fenced-in area and certainly not nail shoes to its feet, at least without getting its consent somehow. Have we not proven that? And I would encourage you to, to be careful here that I don't think, if your response is, well, no, because horses can't engage in argumentation. Okay, well, so that, does that mean that the libertarian foundation you thought you established using this technique, does that only apply to people then who can argue? Like, so somebody, a human who's in a coma or a six-month-old baby who can't argue and so on, are, are they not covered by self-ownership then? So that, that's what I would like you to see. And I'd be curious if when you distill down the argument into the essential steps that you thought would be needed to convey to somebody else to paraphrase, okay, here, here's basically what Hoppe's argument is. Was there anything in what you said that would limit the rights creation or recognition to just homo sapiens? Or really, is it something that would have been broader than that? Or at least it's not obvious to somebody who thought in the beginning of this exercise that animals and humans had the same rights, is there anything in this argumentation argument that would have focused it and shown why it didn't apply to the one, but it did apply to the other? Another related question is, could the, the version of Hoppe's argument that you just constructed for your buddies, couldn't somebody use that to prove everyone needs to own some land? right? That in order for me to have a debate, I need to be standing on land or on an airplane or some land in the economist sense, standing room, right? Some sort of scarce resource I need to be standing on during the course of a debate. Otherwise, it's not fair and it's not really a debate. And so does that prove, therefore, that the nature of argumentation implies everyone owns at least a little parcel of real estate? Presumably, you don't think it implies that, and so then I'm wondering, the version of Hoppe's argument that you just constructed, 
didn't you have a step in there that the connection between why argumentation means you must own your physical body, isn't that connection the same thing that one could use to say, therefore you must own the ground you're standing on during the debate? Or to go the other way, whatever arguments you use to show why, oh, no, 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 you don't have to own the land like some third party could own a theater and then agree to have this debate. And you go in there and you stand up at the lectern and whatever, and da, 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 that's fine. You don't own the land. You temporarily have the right to use it by permission. Okay, so then if you're a slave, couldn't your owner say, for the purposes of this debate, I'm giving you the use of your vocal cords and your arms and brain and so on, but I'm not permanently relinquishing legal ownership of it, right? So again, I'm not saying Hoppe's argument, the way he views it, implies one or the other. I'm just saying when you went to paraphrase what you thought his argument was, did you just leave yourself open to that sort of attack where someone could use your paraphrase to then justify the fact that everyone must own some land? If you are a libertarian who has a pro-choice position when it comes to abortion, and the argument proceeds along the lines of, look, it, we're not it doesn't matter when life begins, or really should be when human life begins, right? That's, that's irrelevant. And in fact, maybe it does begin at conception. Maybe there's no other non-arbitrary point to say it begins. Doesn't matter if a woman wants to have this other thing that's dependent on her removed from her body, she has the right to do that. Right? So this has been called evictionism but I don't want to link it just to a particular person, namely Walter Block. Just in general, if you're a libertarian, that sort of analysis is what you think ought to be used to come up with the libertarian stance when it comes to the abortion issue. Okay, I, I see the logic there, but then let me ask you this. Do you think in a free society, if people are on a long voyage on the ocean and they discover a stowaway, you know, so somebody had snuck onto the ship before it left port against the wishes of the owners of the ship. And now the people when they're at sea realize there's some 12-year-old kid that wanted to see the world and snuck in. Do they have the right to throw him overboard? Do you think that would be legal in a free society? And, and you can come up with them whatever concessions you want or, or uh, extenuating circuits. Like you might say, well, geez, if you're out in, in, a, in a raft and you only have enough food for three people and then someone else came in against your permission. But, but if, if there's no question, oh yeah, there's enough food on the ship and whatever to make it to the next port. It's just, who the heck does this kid think he is? We didn't give him permission. He doesn't, he can't be here. And I think you see where this is going. You can change it to make it a more futuristic con concept or, or scenario. Suppose there's a ship going to Mars in the future and it's a nine month voyage. And then the, the people flying the ship discover there's a stowaway in, do they have the right to eject the person into space and say, look, at, we're, not, we're not trying to kill you. It's just, you can't, you know, we're not saying you have to go to the grave. You just can't stay here. And so we're getting you, we're ejecting you from our system. And yeah, the fact that you need us to survive, that's unfortunate, but not really our problem. But so my question, do you think that would be legal to do? I'm not even saying whether that's right or wrong or, or your answer, but I'm, I'm just asking, do you actually think that's the way it would play out in courts or do you think legally there might be some other principles that get invoked? And then another twist is, what if what happened, the so-called stowaway, what if it was a kid who it turned out had been asleep, you know, just sleeping on the, on the uh, shore near the ship 
And either because someone out of malice or just some freak event happened where the kid without his, you know, with, through no fault of his own, ended up in the ship, right? Like maybe some people were walking by and thought it'd be funny and they picked the kid up and threw him into a, you know, a pile of boxes that was then going to get loaded into the cargo section and the kid really just slept through it and the kid had no idea and just woke up on the ship and then, oops, sorry, but you're, you're here against the, the owner's will. Or like I say, it's just some freak thing where it's not that the kid was sleeping somewhere that come on, he should have known better that there was a good chance he was going to end up falling into the ship before it, it departed. Just come up with some freak scenario where the kid is minding his own business and somehow is in the ship against his will. You know, not that he not that he meant to do it, and then is discovered by the people later as they embark on this long voyage, and they decide, well. And we realized you didn't choose to be here, but, you know, we didn't invite you in either. And so we got to kick you out. All right. So, again, my question is, do you think the legal framework in a free society really would just say the only issue is, does the owner of this piece of land not want this other human draining his or her resources and can just say, you got to get off. That's it. Another example Walter Block dreamed it up is somebody, you have a, you live in an apartment complex and you've got like a pole that sticks out and somebody either fell or jumped from a higher floor and then is hanging on your pole and says, hey, I want to come into your apartment. You know, I, I'm just going to walk right through and, and then, you know, go to the elevator in the hallway. And can you say, no, you can't come on my land? You know, assume you own the apartment, like you're not renting it from a landlord or something. Should that be legal in a free society? Or do you think there might be more involved in that? If you are an atheist libertarian who thinks that not only is the God of the Bible nonsense, you know, it's a fairy tale myth like Zeus or something, but that also it's a good thing he doesn't exist the way it's depicted in this old literature because he's a tyrant and he has no, you know, he's a moral monster ordering all these things. If that's what you think, my question is, well, hang on. In the Genesis account, there was nothing. And then God brought the entire physical universe into existence over the course of six days. So according to standard libertarianism, isn't the God of the Bible, if he existed, isn't he the owner of everything? According to your own framework in terms of homesteading. Or to put it another way, does homesteading principles apply to everybody except the God of the Bible in your book? If you're a libertarian and you spend a lot of your time making fun of anti-vaxxers and 9-11 truthers, let me just ask you to wonder or ponder why is it that you do that? Like It seems interesting that if you think, for example, that the academics and the experts are wrong when it comes to Federal Reserve policy. And in fact, far from helping us, the experts from MIT and Harvard, when they're running the Fed, cause the very problems, the economic, you know, booms and busts that they claim they're helping solve. Why is it so inconceivable that what the government, you know, the people, the CDC and whatnot say about vaccines might not be the full story? Okay, so again, I'm not, my point is not, do you agree with the so-called anti-vaxxers? And notice, like, using these terms sort of demonizes the group. But is it 
why is it necessary to paint anyone who has that stance as a complete raving lunatic? Like, oh, someone who believes in conspiracy theory. Why is that such an odd stance to have? Likewise, with the 9-11 truth stuff, is it merely that, oh, that, that, that view is just too too out there and we don't we don't want to be associated because that will embarrass us or is it really something fundamentally different that yes the government can consistently ruin the inner city systematically you know lock up minorities under pretext of the drug war bomb foreign countries under the most bogus of pretenses but yet you know the idea that oh the government could have known something about 9-11 beyond what the official story says and you know, with varying degrees of intensity in terms of what is the alleged conspiracy to have been, you know, in terms of ranging from, oh, they had intel that it was coming and they let it happen because they realized all the power they could grab it after the attack all the way to, you know, Dick Cheney's a lizard person who planted the charges himself on September 10th. All that stuff, again, my point is just, why is that so completely off limits and that if you're a libertarian, I've, I've noticed some of you do this, why is it that you feel the need to like let the world know that the groups that are really the threat out there are the people who have the audacity to look up stuff on Google and think they know more about vaccines than what the CDC says or that they think U.S. government officials might be capable of deliberately harming Americans. Like it seems like given a lot of what libertarians believe in terms of standard stuff, those two propositions, namely that the people at the CDC could actually have things backwards or that government officials who were behind the invasion of Iraq might also not have been fully above board with what happened around 9-11 and then the ensuing investigations and so on. I don't know. I'm wondering, are you are you so sure that those people are completely crazy? Isn't it funny when you look at like hardcore communists? They uh, they have all their infighting, right? Like the the groups they hate the most. It's not capitalists. It's not the bourgeois. It's other communists who don't fully agree with every last little jot and tittle of their particular sects' doctrines, right? You know, whether you're someone who loves Stalin or versus Lenin or Trotsky or blah, 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 or you're a Marxist. No, I'm not a Marxist. I'm something else. And that, 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 right? All these little in groups that are such that an outsider can't even tell the different flavors apart, but they certainly know the difference. Like, oh, no, 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 no. you're confusing us with such and such. Those people are idiots or monsters. We're the true communists. Isn't it funny to see them fighting like that? And the other thing, too, that's a shame is they'll take their ideological framework and not just use it when they're fighting other groups who are 99% on board with them and just deviate that one little thing, but they'll also use it when they're like watching a movie or the Super Bowl or uh, just, you know, stand-up comedian and they just have this framework, right? This framework of, you know, the oppressed groups and the oppressors and anybody who tries to do anything in normal life that does not fit in with and serve the right interests according to this communist ideology is a traitor, right? It is an enemy and needs to be denounced. So my question is, does that sound like any other group that you know that it behaves that way? If you were pushing people to vote for Gary Johnson last time he ran, 
and when other libertarians, with a small L, explained to you the problems they had with Gary Johnson, was your main defense to point out how great he was on so many other issues and say, look at how much better he is than Trump or Hillary Clinton. Come on. So my question is, when you look at your own rhetoric and the way you defended it, were you effectively saying that the Libertarian Party candidate was the least of three evils? And if you were saying that implicitly, don't you see why that's somewhat at odds with your perhaps condemnation of the people who either vote R or D by saying you're just voting for the lesser of two evils? Or to put it another way, the arguments that you were using to tell people, look at we have to rally behind someone. We got to send a message to the system. Hold your, yeah, Gary Johnson's not perfect, but hold your nose and vote for him because of X, Y, Z. And I'm saying, wouldn't X, Y, Z then also show that really what you ought to do is hold your nose and vote for either Trump or Hillary Clinton, depending on which of those two you thought was the greater threat. And of course you vote for the other one. A lot of free market libertarians, when it comes to tax policy, they don't want the person to be naive. They say, oh, the issue is not where the tax is actually levied. The issue is who actually bears the burden of it after prices adjust. So for example, when it comes to tariffs, even if technically the tariff is levied on the domestic company that's sending the product over and they have to officially pay the tariff fee, clearly most libertarians in the age of Trump argue it's the consumer who pays the price of the tariff. We don't care where it's actually levied. All right, so or in other words, if it's the foreign seller who technically has to write a check to the treasury, which by the way, I'm not even saying that is what it is in practice, but even if it were, that okay, that just changes the price they would charge to goods headed for America so that then after the tariff is paid, they still get you know their, their pre-tariff cut. So in other words, the, the foreign seller is going to get the same amount whether they're selling into the American market or on the, on the world market. Another way you, or place you see this is when it comes to Social Security, right? If some progressive says, oh, no, no, the Social Security half of that tax is paid by the worker and the other half is paid by the employer, a lot of libertarian types will say, oh, you're being silly. That's just a ruse. You fell for the smokescreen. You can't see past step one. If it weren't for the, quote, employer share of Social Security, if that were eliminated, workers' pre-tax wages would go up, right? And so, in other words, the worker would be getting paid more from the employer if the employer didn't know I have to pay Social Security on the employer side of it. So still, when all is said and done, the argument goes, the workers are the ones paying both sides of the so-called Social Security tax, both the employer and the employee's side. They're paying that out of what their wages would have been in the absence of such a tax. Okay, so that's, that's pretty standard stuff. But then... When it comes to measures of income inequality or discussions of whether the rich pay their fair share, most libertarians will point to the statistics reported by the IRS that show, oh, the top 1% pay such and such percent of all income tax. And it's a big number. And so my question is, why do we just look at the raw fact of who writes the checks to the IRS when it comes to telling people the rich pay their fair share 
And we don't look at, well, gee, do prices and wages adjust to offset that? And so to give you an example more specifically of what I mean, suppose they come along, you know, Bernie gets elected, he comes along, he imposes an extra 20% surtax on people making over $500,000 a year on their income. And so maybe what happens then is a lot of productive people who make more than that amount, what if they decide over time just to leave the country? You know, they, they go to Europe or something or they go to Brazil because they don't want to be getting taxed at such confiscatory rates. So that reduces the supply in the U.S. of these really high marginal product people who command a high annual salary so that the pre-tax income of the top 1% goes up. And then when it gets slapped with Bernie's new tax, yeah, they end up writing checks to the government, but it's they're still their after-tax income is still pretty high. That most of that new tax was absorbed by the company charging higher prices or the shareholders getting less money or whatever, but it's not that particular person on whom the tax was levied that bears the brunt of it. Okay, so my question is not whether now that I brought this complication, you can ex post reconcile it all and say, no, I think with the elasticities, it's the tariff really does fall on the American consumer and the social security tax does blah, blah, blah. But no, I think the high income tax rate on specific earners largely falls on the earners themselves. I'm not, okay, that's fine. But my question is, did you even think of that before I brought it up? Or had you always just assumed, no, no, no. When it comes to who pays the most in income taxes, all you need to do is look at who writes checks to the government's end of story. You don't need to dig any further. And so if that did describe you, and it described me until a couple of years ago, um, then my, my point is just to say, maybe there's more there. Should you perhaps analyze other areas of your thought to see, do you deploy one type of argument when it helps get you where you want to go in one setting, but you don't reason that way when it comes to tax analysis in a different setting? Do you, do you just use the tools to get the outcome that you want? Let me ask some questions related to the idea of the non-aggression principle, the foundation of libertarianism, at least in the Rothbardian tradition. So one thing is, do you think it makes sense that according to your framework, a seven-year-old who grabs a pack of chewing gum from the gas station has just committed aggression, whereas the people in an MMA fight who, you know, one guy might beat the other guy so bad the guy has to go to the hospital, but since that was voluntary, that's not aggression. So I'm just raising the question, do you think maybe the terminology is a bit awkward in some settings where it leads you to have to say that? A different question is, do you think that for something to be immoral, it has to involve an initiation of aggression? Is, it, is an initiation of aggression in the libertarian sense a necessary condition for immorality to have occurred or at least immorality that you care about? To put it another way, when somebody complains about something, is your go-to response to, to look to see if any rights were violated? To boil it down to a, a specific scenario, to illustrate this dichotomy that I'm trying to address here, suppose you got two sons, and one son you find out has been systematically, every time he goes to the gas station, they have little Hershey kisses in a bin by the, by the register, and you're supposed to pay a nickel for each one. And he just, he will, as he's leaving, he just habitually grabs one of those things and takes it. And you find out he's been doing that for a long time. Like that's just what he does when he goes to that gas station. 
you find out your other son has been systematically having an affair with his secretary and cheating on his wife. So I'm saying in your book, which of those two sons do you really need to have a talk with? And who do you think is, you know, is suffering from the bigger problem? Because keep in mind, stealing a Hershey kiss from a gas station is aggression. That's a crime. Murray Rothbard would show you he's violated property rights. Your other son hasn't broken any laws. Everybody, let's take a break from my tough questions for libertarians to once again make a pitch for your support. Let me put it to you this way. I am uniquely positioned to take on these controversial hot-button issues that the shock jocks can't because they get, they get kicked off social media platforms, whereas I look like George Costanza. Nobody's threatened by George Costanza. So see, I can go in to these controversial areas and weigh in in ways that make everyone say, oh, okay, good point. See, I'm nice and safe. So you want to support that, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks, everybody. If you're into the libertarian philosophy and you've read Murray Rothbard and other related thinkers and you say, yeah, yes, I'm a libertarian, I understand all that stuff, but right now I'm a minarchist, that I, I agree that the state shouldn't be involved in education or the roads, that it causes problems with money and banking, it causes the business cycle. But you know, where I, I do think it makes sense to have the state enjoying a monopoly is when it comes to the provision of police services, uh, court rulings, and military defense. So if that's you, my question is, what the heck is wrong with you? If you're the kind of libertarian who's just mystified, that how can these right-wingers be gaining such currency and traction among our youth that you know these, these so-called social conservatives and people talking about restoring our country and let's look at how obnoxious these groups are or whatever, let me just ask you something. Are you aware that there's a growing discussion in certain communities about MAPs, MAPs, minor attracted persons, and that the arguments being used to explain why we should stop shaming these people and this is another group that has been historically oppressed and we need to understand them and so on, is, is the use of the, the term consent to say that the, the true issue when it comes to perhaps illegitimate relationships between any two people boils down to whether there was consent and age per se is completely irrelevant. And don't be distracted by that red herring. So give, was that on your, your map at all? Or to the extent that when you do hear people complaining about this, is your go-to response to say, here we go again, these right-wing cultural conservatives worrying about what consenting people do in the bedroom is that your go-to response when the discussion has now clearly moved over into talking about children under the age of 10 and what they should be exposed to or what should be brought up in schools or even at the library during story time and so forth? Is your go-to response just to say, no, as long as there's consent, that's the only issue involved? And then a related question is, if that is what you're saying, can you see why there's so many groups of people in the United States that think, okay, if the libertarian position is that's just a matter of preference or whatever, and the important thing is to talk about comparative advantage and how tariffs cause an inefficient division of labor around the globe and not to worry about people normalizing minor attracted persons, maybe the libertarian movement is not for me and I need to go find somebody else who's addressing the things that I think are the pressing issues.
can you see why that might happen? And why also that's unfortunate because then the groups they do go to probably have a lot of other views that are not conducive to liberty. It's pretty standard in libertarian circles to reject collectivist terminology or arguments, right? When people talk about, uh, oh, in 1941, uh, the Japanese bombed us and so then we had to enter the war. Or, oh, gee, uh, I'm not sure, sir, it was good when, when we invaded Iraq. Maybe that was a, a mistake. And so a lot of libertarians, whoa, what's this we? We didn't do that. There were certain agents acting on behalf of the U.S. government. It's a category mistake to think that we did anything or don't associate the state with us. And in general, everything is just individuals. That, that you know, collectives socially are just aggregates of individuals. And that's the way you need to analyze everything. And talking in terms of something like, oh, the, even to say the U.S. government did such and such actually is a misnomer. You know, there's individuals who compose the U.S. government, right? And again, this, I've written similar things in my study guides, right? So, so there's that. But then recently, for example, people were making fun of the New York Times and its presidential endorsement. And they posted the list of New York Times presidential endorsements going back, I think, to like the 60s. And they were always the Democrats. And someone was like, oh, imagine my shock. And so my question is, did it occur to you to tweet at the person who put that meme out? or that statistic on Twitter, to say, the New York Times editorial board isn't a thing. There's different people who are on the editorial board this year compared to 1960. And so this idea that it's the New York Times position on something, or when we say, Time Magazine's person of the year, ha ha ha, let's look back in time and see some of the other choice candidates. Well, no, it's not that Time Magazine is a thinking entity with, with preferences and reason, right? It's just individuals and it's completely illegitimate collectivism to assume that the people who decide the time person of the year nowadays is the same decision-making entity that it was in 1945, right? And yet, I'm guessing you don't have a problem using collectivist talk when it comes to making fun of people you disagree with, right? Or do you, do you like to talk about how CNN behaves a certain way? And like every time you want, you go to say that, do you go and verify that it's the same personnel who were involved in the decision? Or do you just kind of think, no, CNN acts a certain way. Michael Malice came up with a great phrase to distinguish the media the, as touts or parrots of the establishment line compared to the new rebel media, let's call it podcasters and people just doing stuff on the ground on Twitter or whatever until they get their accounts banned. And the term he came up with was corporate media. And I think part of what happened is it used to be, we used to say mainstream media. Like back in the day, I remember that was the go-to. Like, oh, you won't hear this on the mainstream media. And they, or somebody even just abbreviate as MSM. Mainstream media, those are the, the clowns or the shysters, the, the con men to be contrasted with the truth that you're getting on the internet or, you know, getting from podcasts and whatnot. And then many people stopped using that because they thought that gave too much credibility to them. That after a while, nobody was getting their news from CNN. And so it was, you know, realizing we're, we're giving them too much credit. And so anyway, Michael Malice comes along, he proposes the term corporate media 
And he thought that would be particularly effective for libertarian types. I mean, Malice, I think, calls himself an anarchist, not a libertarian. But for him to use that because he thought that would be good, that progressives who might agree with you in terms of your anti-war stance or whatever, that would show like, oh, yeah, see, don't you want to rail against the corporate media because you guys don't trust corporations, do you? So my question is, if you're a libertarian and you've adopted Malice's term, and, and I have, by the way, I, that's what I use because it's the best thing I can find to succinctly identify which kind of media groups I'm talking about. Isn't that a bit odd? Isn't it the case, especially if you go read canonical libertarian works, isn't it usually the case that the corporation is a good thing? Or at least that the corporateness is not a source of, of evil, right? So it's not saying that all corporations are good. That was never in the standard libertarian corpus, but the mere fact of bigness, isn't that normally an indication that they must be serving their consumers well? Like, gee, you don't, you don't like McDonald's? Well, tell that to all the people buying their hamburgers. Right? Isn't, isn't that the standard normal libertarian response that would have happened in 1975 if some leftists had been complaining about McDonald's burgers were bad for you and people should be eating tofu instead? I don't even know if tofu was a thing in 1975. But I'm saying at this point, another way of putting it is when it comes to so-called deplatforming, when a dissident voice typically from the alt-right gets kicked off, many libertarians will say, this is an alarming trend. Now it's not just Alex Jones, but it's this person. And what's the worst thing he ever said? And then a typical critique of them will be to say, ooh, it's a private company, can do what it wants. And then the response is to say, yes, yes, we know Twitter's a private company. We're just saying, da, da, da. So well, my question, though, is I'm not asking whether libertarianism doesn't allow you to criticize particular corporations. Of course it does. But your own rhetoric years ago, especially if you're older in the movement, wouldn't you have talked like that? And so I think, is it possible that's partly why some of the critics are responding that way, that it's like, oh, you guys are late to the party. Don't you know a lot of people on the left, for example, have been complaining about bad things corporations have been doing for decades. And it's not until they started booting people like you off their platforms that you all of a sudden set up and realized, you know, sometimes even private companies are insidious and it's not the state that's the public enemy number one. For my final tough question for libertarians, let me first set up the scene. Imagine John Steinbeck, you know, fabulous writer. He just goes around and he reads various essays that students write in their English classes for college, and he's just disgusted. He goes to Barnes and Noble. He's looking at all the books and the bestsellers thing. He's disgusted, and he just he laments and he says, "Man, the average person just can't construct a good story. I'm surrounded by incompetence. This world is awful. I'm just oh I'm miserable. This is oh, what's the point of continuing when I'm surrounded by such half-rate hacks." Different example, imagine Michael Jordan back in the prime of his career and he goes to the Y and plays against middle-aged men and just crushes them. And he just goes around the country going to different courts, you know, pickup games or wherever, and he just crushes everybody. He's like, you know, this is just amazing. Most people can't even consistently hit a layup. Like most people, you put them at the foul line and have them shoot 10 you're lucky if they hit five. This is 
I can't believe I'm surrounded by such mediocrity. This is disgusting. It's, it's embarrassing to go through this world being this good when everyone else is just so awful in comparison to me. Ugh. All right, so what would be wrong about those two things? Besides it just being incredibly narcissistic and warped, it would be a shame that these people you know, had these gifts, these amazing abilities, and instead of appreciating it and then using it either to have a good time or to help others or to make the world a better place, imagine if their very superiority in those spheres of life, namely being a good writer and being amazing at basketball, imagine if that was how they then just came away thinking that the rest of humanity was doomed and flawed because they didn't live up to them on that one dimension of the human experience. Now, totally different scenario. Imagine there's somebody who's particularly good at seeing through the lies of state officials and can see the big picture and realizes that, oh, no, there's a lot of people who are working for this organization, this machinery that is systematically eroding our liberties, and basically trying to take over the world. And because you have that insight, that special sixth sense, and you can see that, whereas others just can't, imagine if your response to that would be to throw up your hands and lament and say, man, it's disgusting to be surrounded by such sheeple, all these people just taking what the corporate press spoon feeds them. I, I'm just disgusted by the average human. They're just a bunch of followers. Ugh. Let me just get out of this system. This is crazy. These people are hopeless and not worth redeeming. So my question is, do you see any similarity between all three of those scenarios? And does that have any implications for maybe your attitude when you look at the world today? You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.